All right, good morning, everybody. Glad to see you this morning. I hope you have your Bible with you and that you'll turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 is where we are today. Last week, we saw Paul continue to develop this comparison between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, a comparison that he introduced way back in verse 5 when he said, Our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills the Spirit gives life. You may remember last week that I told you that chapter 3, verse 10 was a key verse of what we covered last week. He said, for indeed what had glory in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. Glory that surpasses it. You may also remember that I told you that the key word was glory in the passage last week. In fact, a word that Paul uses 10 times in the passage last week. And according to one observant church member, I used that word 87 times last week. This is a note that I was handed after the service. I hesitate to show that to you for fear that I'll get one of those after every service. Um, This is how many times you said, oh, or let's see, or whatever. If it's a word like glory, fine, do do it. Uh, Other words, maybe not. Paul used three different arguments from lesser to greater last week to show us that the old covenant ministry of the letter the ministry of death, ministry of condemnation, it had glory. It really did. It had glory. It had big-time glory even. But the ministry of the Spirit, the ministry of life, the ministry of righteousness has even more glory. You may remember my shot-put illustration from last week, which, by the way, I'm convinced is the first in preaching history. Um, It's a pretty obscure sport. Um, Maybe you remember that illustration to show even more surpassing glory of the new covenant. At the end of last week, Paul also made the point that the old covenant was fading away, but the new covenant lasts forever. That idea of the temporal and preparatory role of the old covenant and the permanent and eternal nature of the new covenant, that's going to be teased out a little more this week in our text. There's a shift this week as the primary image that Paul is going to use is no longer the glory of the Old Covenant versus the glory of the New Covenant, but he's going to use this idea of the veil that we saw last week in Exodus chapter 34, the veil that Moses put on his face when he met with the Israelites, after he met with the Lord. That's going to be the primary image that Paul is going to use this week. Another shift in the text from this last week to this week is that last week he was focusing on the ministry or the idea of Old Covenant versus New Covenant. This week he's going to talk more about the people the people of the Old Covenant, the people of the New Covenant. The expository commentary says the abstract, like last week, the abstract concept of Old Covenant and New Covenant becomes humanly concrete this week as we talk about Moses, as we talk about the Israelites, as we talk about you and me. There are some interesting technical aspects of the text this week that are super challenging, really interesting but super challenging. Even in all that, though, the point is clear. The overarching point is clear, and it's really helpful for us. So pray that God will show that to us clearly. Let's read together 2 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 12 today. God's word says, Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech, and are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face, so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. But their minds were hardened. For until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, 
because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, open our eyes. Open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things in your word. By your Spirit, remove the veil that we may behold your glory and be transformed. And by your Spirit, grant us confident hope from which we would speak with great boldness. Remind us that all of this comes from you so that you alone receive the glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, look at verse 12. The first part of verse 12 says, Therefore, having such hope. Well, we know that the word therefore obviously connects this passage to what we saw last week. Kind of one big idea. So we are seeing the idea from at least chapter 3, verses 7 to 11, developed and applied this week. But what hope does he mean here? To what hope is he referring? Well, specifically, I think he's referring to the hope of the lasting nature of the new covenant and its ministry. That it is not a ministry or a covenant that is fading away, coming to an end, but a ministry and a covenant that lasts forever and ever. I think that's specifically what he's talking about. But generally, I think he's referring to the surpassing glory of the new covenant that he laid out last week. The life-giving ministry of the Spirit that he's been talking about for a while now. The righteousness which comes by faith that we talked about last week when we spoke about justification. And it's important to remember that hope in the Bible is way different from the concept of hope in, that we use in our conversations today. Hope in the Bible seems to be, in fact, the exact opposite of the way we use the word hope in our conversations today. We say, I hope my team wins the Super Bowl this evening, right? I really hope my team wins the Super Bowl this evening. And if your team is the Chiefs, who on Thursday were the two-point underdog, you might not have a lot of confidence that your team is going to win the Super Bowl today. Maybe a better example is how Cowboys fans talk at the beginning of the season. I really hope my team is going to win the Super Bowl this year. But there's no real expectation that that's going to happen, right? In fact, there's, there seems to be the exact opposite lean. That my team's not going to win the Super Bowl. I warned the two biggest Cowboy fans in the room that this was happening this morning. For the record. That's the way we use the word hope today, but that's not the way the Bible uses the word hope. It's not this like long shot, probably not going to happen, but I'm leaning into it and really hope and really desire it will no, 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 the Bible speaks of hope as a confident expectation. In fact, John Piper really does a good job of defining hope this way. He says, biblical hope is a confident expectation and desire for something good in the future. There is a moral certainty, he says, that the good we expect and desire will come. That idea of confident expectation, moral certainty, that changes our approach, right? If we have hope, if we have a confident expectation that we are ministering a covenant that never ends. If we have a confident expectation and a moral certainty that the Spirit brings life where there is only death, if we have a confident expectation, a moral certainty that Jesus Christ came to save sinners, then we preach with boldness. And that's what he says. We use great boldness in our speech. That new covenant hope creates boldness in our preaching as we share the good news 
with the world around us. And I thought the best way to drive this point home is to look at other places where this hope is in play. Look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God to salvation. That's bold speech, right? He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 to the same people, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the spirit and of power. So that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. It's confident. Confident, right? I didn't come to you with my own swagger my own slick talk, what did I come with? I came with Christ and him crucified. Sinners and rising again. The message that is the power of God unto salvation and changes people forever and ever. And look at Ephesians chapter six. He invites these people to pray for him that he would speak with boldness. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, Be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. So when we speak about Christ, when we speak about Christ crucified, when we speak about the spirit that brings life, we should speak with boldness, right? Confidence and certainty. And we see that in Jesus' early apostles, even as they were under threat of death, imprisonment, and beatings. We see it in Acts chapter 4. As the people observed the confidence, that's the same word for boldness that we're looking at in 2 Corinthians. When they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. I wanted you to see that because this kind of boldness, this kind of certainty, this kind of confidence doesn't require education. It doesn't require seminary training. It doesn't require Greek and Hebrew background. It doesn't, what what does it require? It requires the spirit and it requires spending time with Jesus. And if those things are true, people will be able to tell that you have spent time with him and to turn the world upside down. You will turn the world upside down just like Peter and John did. Oh, that we would have hope that gives us boldness in our preaching. That's what he says in verse 12. And then he begins to develop the contrast, the comparison some more. In verse 13, he says, we're not like Moses who used to put a veil on his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. But their minds were hardened. But their minds were hardened. Exodus 34 a text that we had read from the pulpit last week that kind of serves as the background for last week and also this week, does not tell us why Moses covered his face. There's there's no indication of why he does that. In Exodus 34, it just says that he did that. Here, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us why he did it. But the way he says it is difficult to understand. And this is kind of where those really interesting details come into play. 
those really technical things, especially in the original language. <laughs> There's some weird stuff going on with the vocabulary and the syntax. There's all kinds of weird, interesting stuff. And those are the kind of things that I find super interesting and helpful. And sometimes I share them with you, and I look up, and more than the normal two of you are asleep. And so I'm not going to try to do that today, but if you want to have coffee and talk about some of those super technical, very interesting things, I'd be glad to do that. I want us, though, to consider generally, why did Moses cover his face? It says that in Exodus 34, he did, and Paul is teaching us here why he did it. And there's some people that will say, well, he veiled his face so that they, the Israelites, wouldn't see that the glory was fading away. As he spent time away from the presence of God, the shine on his face perhaps faded away. And maybe people would say he didn't want them to see that. They emphasized the fading away part of the text, as if Moses was hiding something from the people of God, trying to trick them into thinking his face was always shiny when indeed it was not. That's one way to go with the text, but I don't think it's the best way. I think the better way is to see that Moses was not hiding anything from the people. He was rather guarding them. Because Moses knew that the glory on his face was a lesser glory. Moses always knew that it was a lesser glory. Maybe he knew that his was a ministry of death, a ministry of condemnation. Maybe he knew that mere letters on the stone only brought death. Maybe he knew that a greater glory was coming. Maybe he knew about the coming ministry of the Spirit, ministry of life, ministry of righteousness. Maybe he knew about the new covenant that was coming, but the people might miss the new covenant that was coming, the end of the old covenant and the coming of the new covenant if they got caught up in the glory on his face in that moment. Like in my shot put illustration from last week, if someone said, that was incredible, that guy just threw it to second base. And they get caught up in that thinking it will never, ever be greater than that. And they walk out of the stadium and they never get to glory in the fact that someone threw it over the fence. Do you remember this? Maybe Moses puts a veil on his face because he doesn't want them to think this is it. This is the pinnacle. This is the high point. But even though he put a veil on his face, they did say that. They did think that. Even with the veil. I say that because however you read verse 13, the technicalities in verse 13, the beginning of verse 14 is absolutely clear, and it is the result. Their minds were hardened. Their minds were hardened, but their minds were hardened. They didn't recognize what was going on. They didn't understand. They couldn't see. They didn't realize that all of what they were seeing was pointing to a greater glory, a new covenant. Gary Miller says, despite all the positive things we could say about Moses' ministry, it always produced this result. Apart from the Spirit, apart from Christ, it always produced this result. The hard heart, the hard mind, death. Next, Paul, Paul's going to make clear that this wasn't just a problem for the people in Exodus when Moses was among them with his shiny face and his veil. The same issue, the veiling, the not being able to see, was still happening in his day. Look at the next phrase in verse 14. For until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. Our Kent Hughes says, the same veil, the inward veil, of which the outward veil was the symbol, is still keeping the hearts of the Israelites in darkness whenever they are 
confronted afresh, as it were, with Moses in the form of the Old Testament scriptures. And, and most scholars would say that this reading of the Old Covenant here is a reference to the readings that took place in the synagogue when the Jews got together regularly for worship. When they read the Old Covenant in that setting, they say, this is it. This is the pinnacle. This is what we need. And the text says literally that the veil remains not unveiled. The veil remains upon them and it has not been lifted. It has not been revealed. They do not see. They have not experienced the unveiling. But look, in the text, they can experience that, right? It's not hopeless. It's not hopeless for those reading the Old Covenant apart from the Spirit. It's not hopeless for those who only have the letter that kills. Look what the text says. Unto this very day at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. It's removed in Christ. Let that sink in for a minute. The veil that keeps them from seeing the greater glory. The veil that keeps them from seeing the lasting glory. The veil that keeps them from seeing the hope of life in the spirit is removed in Christ. In Christ it's removed. In fact, that point is so sweet. He says it twice. Look at verse 15. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. That, that's essentially the same thing, right? He says exactly the same thing. And the repetition is probably for the sake of emphasis. So let me encourage you not to zoom in on the differences between verse 14 and 15. Like don't, don't zoom in on the difference of, well, what's the difference between the heart and mind and the veiled heart? What's the difference between the heart and mind and the veiled heart? That's not the point. The point is not the difference. The point is the hardness and the resistance and the blindness that is in every man apart from Christ. And don't zoom in on the difference between the veil being removed in Christ or taken away when one turns to the Lord. Like, let's not, let's not split that hair and say, what's the difference between those two things? Let's say, these are two ways to say the exact same thing, and let's rejoice that Christ does that, that that happens, that the veil is taken away, that he brings light, that he opens eyes, that he changes hearts. Let's rejoice in that, that the veil can be lifted, and that Christ is the one who lifts it. And so rather than splitting this hair, I think it's more important to ask yourself, have you experienced that? Have you experienced that? Like reading the words and it does not bring life. Reading the words and it's like you can't see. And then one day you read the words and you're like, what? what is that? You turn to Christ and your whole life has changed. I heard Paul Washer tell a story about this, about... Um, a friend of his who said, hey, I've got this friend who lives in a cabin in the woods, kind of in isolation, and he's going to die. He's got cancer, and he's just going to die, and he doesn't know Jesus. Would you go preach to him? And Paul Washer's like, you, you may have heard me tell this story. Paul Washer's like, yeah, I'll go preach to him. I'm glad to do it. So he goes to his cabin, he sits down with him, and he starts walking through a basic presentation of the gospel. You know, all the normal texts you would to Romans 3 23 all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God Romans 6 23 like the wages of sin is death Romans 5 8 God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were still sinners Christ died for us Romans 10 9 and 10 if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead you will be saved 
he goes through all this, talks to him about John 3, 16, right? God so loved the world, he gave his only son. And whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And he gets through that, and, and, and Washer says to the guy, are you ready to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus? He's like, nah, I've heard that before. So Washer says, just go back to the beginning and start over, say Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23, Romans 5.8, Romans 10.9 and 10, John 3.16. Are you ready to confess your sins, repent, and believe in Jesus Christ? And the old lumberjack guy's like, nah, I've heard all that before. So he, he rewinds again, just discourages his heart. He rewinds again. He starts back in the same thing, same thing. And he gets to John 3, 16, the third time. He says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And the man says, I've got to have that. I, I need him. He died for me. Oh, I'm ready to trust in him. Why didn't you say this at the first? This is what the, the man said to him. Why didn't you say that the first time? And Paul Walsh was like, I said that three times. But he had to veil over his face. He had a veil over his heart. He couldn't see it and he couldn't hear it the first three times. Something happened. Something happened and the veil was lifted. Suddenly he could see. His life was changed forever that day. And you know what? That, that, that may not have happened. That may be some story that's been passed down and passed down to the preacher. But listen, that story has happened. And that story is your story. Most of you, most of you have sat in a place just like this. And you've heard it sung. You've heard it preached. You've heard it read. Eh, pass, pass, pass. And then one day, like, why haven't they been saying this all along? Jesus died for me? I'm under the wrath of God and he took my place. Salvation as a gift that I receive simply by trusting. Why has no one told me this before? And the preacher is like, I tell you this every week. But there's a veil. And it's only lifted in Christ. It's only lifted when you turn to the Lord. Maybe it's happening. Maybe it's happening for you, even in this moment. Have you experienced that lifting of the veil? Look at verse 17. Verse 17 says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Remember, Paul has been talking all along about the ministry of the Spirit in the New Covenant. And where the Spirit is at work, there is liberty. Some of your translations say freedom. That's really good. Colin Cruz helpfully says, With this statement, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. It must be understood within the overall context of chapter 3 where the new covenant of the spirit is contrasted with the old covenant of the law. Under the new covenant where the spirit is the operative force, there's freedom. Under the old covenant where the law reigns, there's bondage. That's the way it was. The old covenant, apart from the spirit, lettered on the page, bondage, death, condemnation. Right? But where the spirit is at work, there's freedom, liberty, Life, righteousness, right? Paul talks about this in Galatians a lot. I put on the board Galatians chapter 3. That's not the verse I meant to put up, but it's a good one. It says, but before faith came, we were kept under custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. The law, a tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under the tutor. 
For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. That's not altogether wrong, um, but it's not what I was looking for. Actually, Galatians chapter 5 is the text I meant to put up there. Chapter 5 verse 1 says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Christ came to give you freedom. Live in that freedom. Where the Spirit is, there is liberty. But don't abuse that concept. This is not freedom to live however you want with impunity. As if you turn to Christ, you embrace grace by faith, and then you go on with your lifestyle of sin. No, no, no. That's not the freedom that the Spirit brings. He brings freedom to want to do and to actually do what pleases the Lord. That's the kind of freedom the Spirit brings to your life. Not freedom to sin, freedom to obey. Freedom to live in righteousness. It's kind of that picture of the poem that I shared with you a few weeks ago. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. Right? The law says do it, but doesn't empower you to do it. It's bondage. Better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. And you don't accept those wings and not fly. Right? Like, think about that. You, you, you guys sometimes say, would you rather have the superpower of invisibility or able to fly? What if I said, I give you wings? I give you wings. And you're like, I'll keep walking. I just really like walking. If you've got wings, the intention is that you would fly. And the freedom that the Spirit brings is freedom to live in obedience to the Lord. So fly, believer. And listen to the freedom. This gets better. The freedom in verse 18. We all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. NASB starts verse 18 with and. I mean with but, but it's, it's better and, right? Where the spirit is at work, there is liberty, and we all with unveiled face. Sometimes conjunctions in Greek uh, can go a couple of different ways. This really should be and because there's no contrast here between verse 17 and verse 18. Rather, there's a development and a continuation of the idea of freedom. The freedom is that we all with unveiled face behold the glory of God. That's the freedom that we enjoy that Moses in the ministry of death, with the veil, did not enjoy. And notice he says, we all. Paul oftentimes will use we to refer to himself, right? Like this, like me and my companion, me and my company of apostles. But here he's using it as inclusive of all the church. We all. All of us who are in Christ, all of us who are part of the church, all of us who have tasted the ministry of the Spirit and life and righteousness, we all, all believers, with unveiled face, that should be celebrated, right? Unveiled face, no more barrier, no more blindness, no more thing between us and the glory, right? All of us with unveiled face, beholding, that, that word is the key word in the whole thing, beholding his glory is the key to the transformation that he talks about. We uh, beholding, as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image of gl from glory to glory. Colin Cruz says the verb here, oh, that's a big word, metamorphumetha, right? You might remember metamorphosis from science class, to be changed, 
But here, it's in the present tense, indicating a continuous nature of the change. While the words with ever-increasing glory uh, stress its progressive nature. Right? So when we're talking about being transformed, we're talking about something that is an ongoing process. Not, I have been transformed, but we are being transformed from glory to glory. Uh, some, of your say, some of your translations say from one degree of glory to the next, from one degree of glory to another. So that's the picture of sanctification, right? Last week we talked about justification, that we are declared righteous in the courtroom of God. Now we're talking about the change that happens throughout our lives that flows out of that justification, we are being transformed from the day of our conversion until the day we see Jesus face to face. We are being transformed. And it's progressive. It's an upward trajectory, right? From one degree of glory to the next. From glory to glory. This is the idea of sanctification. This is what we believe about sanctification here at First Baptist Church. That it is the experience beginning in regeneration by which the believer is set apart to God's purposes and is enabled to progress toward moral and spiritual maturity through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in them, growth in grace should continue throughout the life of the regenerate person, throughout the regenerate person's life, right? We're be beholding his glory. When we, with unveiled face, when we are beholding his glory, we are being transformed, right? All throughout our lives into the image of his glory. Gary Miller says, we are transformed gradually, but dramatically. I love that. And I want to see that in my life. Oh, man. I want to see that in my life. Gradually, but dramatically. And sometimes I can't see that from one day to the next. Right? Some of you know how this works with your grandkids. Maybe you haven't seen them in a minute. And you get to see them, and you're like, whoa. When did you get so tall? When did your voice change like that? That's crazy. That, that was a gradual change, and it was dramatic. Oh, that our Christian lives would be that way. It's super interesting to me here that it seems that the idea of beholding his glory is the means by which we are being transformed from glory to glory. Maybe that's a reference to the lesser glory of the old covenant to the greater glory of the new covenant. That could be the case. Maybe it's the, the transformation from the glory of conversion to the glory of glorification through the path of sanctification. Either way, it's something that is increasing and growing. Notice that at the end he says, this is all from the Lord, from the Spirit. We talked about the role of the Spirit in justification last week, that we are declared righteous. The Spirit is also involved in the process of sanctification throughout our lives. And as I step back from this whole picture, Paul knew about this. All of this, right? He had experienced all of this. He, ha he had lived a life with his nose in the letter. Veil over his face. Veil over his heart. Nose in the book. And it led only to death and condemnation. And then the Spirit moved. And the veil was lifted. And he beheld the glory. And he experienced freedom. And transformation. And then bold proclamation. Like this is Paul's story, right? And I was telling the guys at prayer this morning that I want to say no one understood this better than Paul. No one understood this better than Paul. And then I'm like, oh, I don't want to say that. Because I understand that. I've experienced that as well. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you've experienced that. You remember what it was like to have a veil over your heart and nothing moved it. It was stone. 
You remember when that changed. You remember seeing the glory. You remember the freedom. You're experiencing the transformation. And I hope you're preaching with boldness because of the hope that is yours in Christ. Paul doesn't know it better than we know it, but he knew it. And I want to say if this can happen for a guy like Paul, if it can happen for a guy like me, it can happen for a guy like you, a gal like you. So turn to Jesus, right? The veil is lifted in Christ. The veil is lifted when we turn to the Lord. So one scholar says, has the veil been removed from your heart? That's an abstract question, right? What's that even mean? What's he talking about? This scholar goes on and says, have the scriptures become alive to you? Does Christ make sense to you? Or perhaps this is just beginning to happen for you. This is the part I like the most. Maybe that's just beginning to happen. Maybe the thing that you've always just dismissed offhand and rolled your eyes at, suddenly you're like, huh, what about that? I want to hear some more about that. Maybe that's just starting to happen. This guy says, pray and ask Christ to strip away the veil. And if you do, I can promise you on the basis of God's word that he will. I, I think he's on to something there. Like if you're going to say, Lord, lift the veil, let me see the face of Christ. Why would he not answer that prayer? Why would he not answer that prayer and change your heart dramatically? In fact, maybe that prayer is evidence that he's already done it. He's already at work. So turn to Jesus, even now. And then for the rest of you who are believers in Christ, let's reflect on this. Look, I had my uh, graphic design team whip this up this morning. I think when we look at this text and the big ideas, the text that we're looking at today starts with boldness, right? Because of this hope, we have boldness in our preaching, right? But he gets quickly to the unveiling that happens in Christ. Right? There is a veil. There is a veil. They didn't see. They didn't know. They couldn't, couldn't understand. But then there's an unveiling that happens in Christ, which leads to this freedom. Oh, where the Spirit is, there is freedom. And we behold Him, right, with unveiled face, which leads to this transformation. We are being transformed from one degree of glory to another because of the Spirit at work in our lives, which should, by the way, create boldness in us. Right? You see how this is like a never-ending cycle, an upward spiral of growth and evangelism and impact ministry of the new covenant. Paul didn't start with great boldness. He started with blindness. He started with blindness, and there was an unveiling by God's grace, which led to boldness. So where are you, where are you bogged down? This is maybe what I want to ask. Where are you bogged down? Maybe you're blind. Maybe you're like, there's a veil, there's a veil. I just don't see, I don't understand, but I want to. Man, I'm, I'm with that preacher who says, ask the Lord to give you eyes. Ask the Lord to lift the veil. Only he can. Maybe you're bogged down in this freedom. Freedom to see, to behold his glory. Maybe you've got a mistaken view of freedom to sin with impunity. Maybe you're restricted in your freedom that the law is still a, a, a taskmaster over you and it's holding you down. You haven't been set free to obey. Maybe you're struggling with this transformation. Maybe you look back over your life and you're like, I have not grown. It's been years and I haven't grown. 
Where are you bogged down in that? Maybe it's boldness to, to preach. I think the key to unlocking movement seems to be beholding. In the text, if you look at it closely, it seems like the key to unlocking all of it is to behold him, to gaze intently at the face of Christ, to look expectingly at the glory of the gospel that changes our lives. And how do you do that? Here we are doing it. Right here, here we are in the middle of beholding the glory of God by singing his praises, by preaching his word, by discussing it together. Lean into that. Look at his face. Let's stand together and pray. Lord, you are faithful and you are kind and you are powerful. Pray that you would grant us Grant us in this moment more than any preacher could give. Grant us eyes that can see and ears that can hear and hearts that are unveiled, changed forever. Pray for my friends who walk in darkness and blindness and in death. Oh Lord, remove the veil. O oh Lord, raise the dead. Only you can. I pray for my brothers and sisters that we would know freedom in the Spirit, that we would experience transformation, and that we would preach with boldness as we ought to preach. Lord, show us your face. Empower us serve you, we pray in Christ's name.